One year ago, my, my wife and I, we, we bought a house. Um, and as we started looking for the house, I, I knew what was most important um, to us as a family as we were looking for a house. And when I say what was important to us as a family, I mean what was important to me. Right? So when we looked at a house, it was how close are we to a golf course? Um, can we hook up a gas grill out on the deck so I can grill outside whenever I want? Um, or or mo- most importantly, we're about to have our third kids. So we're going to have three kids um, under the age of four. So I wanted to, to know, is there anywhere in the house I can hide? That's what I wanted in a house, what I, I thought mattered. And so there was one moment, it was maybe the fourth or fifth house we looked at, and it was, it was an okay house, it wasn't great, but, but it was maybe in the running. And then our, our, our realtor, as we were leaving, pointed to the garage and said, you don't want to buy this house. I was like, why? And she, she pointed to the garage and said, do you notice how this part of the garage is considerably lower than that part of the garage? And I noticed. She's like, the foundation of this house is, is really bad. You do not want to buy this house. And I knew that, like I knew you, you, like a foundation is important to a house, but in all of the houses we'd walk up to in, until that point, I had given it no consideration, right? I was looking at the, the outsides of the house or, or what the house was let up, how far it was from a, a golf course. That's what mattered to me, but that moment was a reminder, one, of how blind I'd been in the previous houses we had looked at, and two, if I didn't have someone who actually knew what she was doing with us, we could have made a, a huge mistake in the house we bought. Right? We know the importance of a good foundation when it comes to buying a house. Right? No, no one in this room would, would you buy a house without thoroughly inspecting the foundation. And yet, when it comes to many of our, our spiritual lives, I think we build having no clue what foundation it is we're building on. And I mean this for Christians as well as, as not. I think this is, in our culture, just something we do. That, for example, in my own life, I've known a lot of Christians who have suppressed their doubts or their questions, what they're not sure about for Christianity. So their, their faith doesn't really have a foundation. And so the minute life really hits, whether it's suffering or something terrible that happens to them, they, they get to a point where they no longer have the energy to suppress their doubts, right? Or the energy to answer, find answers to the questions that they want answers to. And so in that moment, their, their faith is either of no help to them or they just abandon it altogether, that now in my, my early 30s, I'm enough removed from high school to have seen many of my, my friends who in high school were deeply committed to the Christian faith, and now they're not. And, and so I've had a number of conversations with friends. So why, why? I mean, when we were in youth group together, you were, you were so committed. What happened? And they, they generally give, hey, I, have, I found this objection or this question. And they're always good objections, good questions, things that I've, questions I've asked myself. But here's the part that does not make sense to me. As I'll generally follow up with one, one or two questions or both. One is, okay, well, what, what in the Bible did you find actually give you an answer to those questions? And then two, have you talked to a Christian who's still deeply committed to their faith to find out how they get through that question? And the answer is almost always no. That They just left, the, they left a foundation without asking or studying or inspecting what they were leaving. We would never do that, buying a house. But we do it every day with our spiritual lives. That when it comes to our spiritual lives, how infrequently do we look at our foundation? How infrequently do we look at our hearts and ask, what's really going on down there? Right? On what foundation do you, do you live your life? Do you make your choices, your life choices? What determines how you invest in your children? What kind of work you're going to do, how you're going to, to commit to your spouse. Like, what's at the bottom of all the decisions 
that you make. Because if the foundation is off for us, the consequences are disastrous. That's why Jesus gives us this parable. He knows the tendency we human beings have to build an entire life and foundation without looking at what it is we're building on. And you see, he tells a little parable. It's simple. It's, it's memorable. And at the heart of the parable are, are three questions for us. One, what is it that you're, that you're building your life on? Two, can it handle real life? And three, will it last? So let's look at those three questions here in Matthew 7. What, what's your life being built on? What, uh, can it handle real life? And, and thirdly, will it last? That Jesus, he, he's inviting us here to do work we don't like to do, right? Check into our foundation. If you, if you actually check your house's foundation, it's, it can be quite, quite dirty, nasty work, right? You have to go down into your basement, or if you have a crawl space, you have to crawl into the crawl space. You have to get, get down to where it's dark and dank and nasty and dirty. That's sort of what Jesus is inviting you to do here, is, is look at the decisions you make. Look at the, your life you're building. What are you building on? What drives most of the decisions that you make? Is it, is it just personal happiness that most decisions you make from day to day are really made based on will it make you happier or will it not? Or maybe it's, it's safety and security and, and your aim in life is to, to protect yourself from a dangerous world, to build a wall of security. And so you make decisions that enable you to be protected from the world around you. Or is it to be true to yourself? Right, the life is primarily about realizing your deepest hopes and dreams and so... Whatever those are, you're going to chase after those. And that's how you make the decisions that you make in life. Now, when Jesus begins to press into this question, what are you building your life on? It feels like we could answer that question in a hundred different ways. And what's interesting to me is Jesus says, no. There's only two foundations on which you build your life. Jesus and everything else. I mean, that's essentially what he says in Matthew 7. Did you hear Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. That's option one. Build your life on me and my teachings. Or two, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Jesus is quite insistent. There aren't an endless amount of foundations you can build your life on. There's him and there's everything else. This is pretty astonishing. Right? Even if you don't believe Jesus, or you don't believe in Jesus, you can't miss the gall of what he's saying here. He's basically looking at everyone who's listening to him and saying, how you respond to me is the most important decision you'll make in your entire life. If you do not respond to me and listen to me and do what I say, everything, all your entire life is going to come crashing down on you. It's a pretty arrogant thing to say, right? right? How, could he even, how could he even claim that, say that? And I'll get to that question Later, but, but for first, I don't want to avoid the question he's starting with, which is, what are you building your life on? What's your foundation? He's inviting you to inspect the foundation of your life. And so if, if you're a Christian, I, I would just start by, by saying, do you know why you believe? That if you've had doubts or questions, have you just suppressed them, not really thought about them, just pushed them down? Or, or, or do you have a good foundation for why it is you're a Christian? And when I got to college... Um, in undergrad, I'd already decided I wanted to be a pastor, and so I was a little self-interested. But when I got um, to, to my early 20s, I found I had pr two pretty significant um, doubts or questions when it came to, to God. That one was, was, what about suffering? I grew up, and largely my life was, uh, 
was, was easy. I mean, I grew up in a suburb of Indianapolis. Nothing really tragic happened to me. Nothing really to this day has, has tragically happened to me. So my, my life was easy. But, but by the time I got to my early 20s, I took my first job as a pastor, as a youth pastor in a church. And I was suddenly confronted by the darkness of the world. That's what people bring that to the church, the darkness that they're walking through. And I, I was now suddenly in the world of, of cancer, of anorexia and body image, of depression and suicidal thoughts, of sexual abuse. And a question that I had never asked before in my life suddenly became the only question that mattered to me, which is, God, if you exist, why are you letting these things happen to these people? So that was one. The other, other objection was I was now I was sending me a pastor, which meant I was praying a lot and going to religious services a lot. I had to read my Bible all the time. I had to read my Bible for homework. I was doing all of this religious activity. And what I found was that the more religious activity I did did not necessarily mean that the more I experienced the presence of God. In fact, sometimes it was the opposite. And I just began to have this thought of God, if, if you want to be known, why are you so hard to know? I've been doing all this activity and praying more than I ever have and reading my Bible more than I ever have, and you seem more distant than you ever have. And for most of my life, I'd answer those two objections, those two questions, in very shallow ways. Without much study of the scriptures, without much understanding of how Christian, Christianity has understood those two realities, that, that one, there's presence of evil and suffering in the world, and two, that God often, often seems distant to us. Christianity has deep answers to those questions, but I never bothered to ask because I didn't have to. There were no storms hitting my life. And so I would just say, if you're, if you're a Christian, have you really built your faith on a firm foundation? That when you have questions or doubts or you're unsure of something, do you chase those down in whatever way possible? And if that means grabbing me or grabbing Andrew or I later, do that. Well, that's why we're pastors, is to help people build their faith on a firm Foundation, but that's one thing I'm continually surprised by is how much people are surprised when things the Bible has said is going to happen to you happens to you. And, and just to speak to the students in the room or the kids in the room for, for a minute, I would say especially to you, don't keep your questions or your doubts to yourself. Right? That one of the challenges of growing up in the church is there's this pressure to believe because your parents believe. And I would just say there are good objections, good questions about Christianity. Ask them. Ask your parents. Ask me. Come to me. Don't suppress those questions. Bring them out, right? Bring them out into the open because, the, listen, I guarantee you whatever question or, question or doubt or, or objection you might have to Christianity now, some Christian has had it many, many times before you had it. There are good resources within the scriptures and the church history to answer those questions. So don't suppress those, those doubts. So Christians, make sure you're building your faith on a good foundation, on what Jesus has said, who he actually is, and not just third-hand knowledge, but actually dive into his word. And on the flip, if you're not a Christian, I would, I would encourage you to doubt your doubts, right? Raise objections to your objections. That even do you know what Christianity has to say or what the Bible has to say to the reasons that you give for why you don't believe in Jesus? And maybe you hear that and, and you, you say, but Tim, there are hundreds of religions, right? I mean, if, if we were to inspect all the possible foundations we could build on, it, you could do it in your entire life and you wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface. So why Jesus? Why should I give a devoted amount of time to inspecting who Jesus is? And I think for me here is, is the key is in how the crowds responded to Jesus. Now remember, the crowd Jesus is speaking to here in the Sermon on the Mount is not necessarily his disciples. There's, some of them are his disciples. Some of them have just gathered around to hear what he's had to say. But did you notice how they responded in, in, in verses 28 and 29? 
When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Now what's going on here is not necessarily that they think Jesus is right. I mean, some of them do, no doubt. But they understand what Jesus is doing here is he's talking like he has complete authority. He's not speaking like a typical religious teacher, not like the scribes and the, the Pharisees. You see, most religions are very differential to, to other religions, right? So if you read the, the Quran, Muhammad called Christians and Jews people of the book, referred to Jesus as a prophet, right? In, the, um, um, in Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama said it's great that there's so many different religions because there's, that means there's many different paths to, to God. But Jesus does not do that. He says, either build your life on me and my teachings or build your life on anything else and it will all fall apart on you. He's completely exclusive here. Jesus, build your life on Jesus or, or anything else. The reality is we can't expect, uh, the, inspect the foundations of hundreds of other religions, but I think you have to inspect Jesus. And I don't, I don't just say that because I'm a pastor. I think there's two qualities to Jesus that are present in him that are present in no other religious teacher, moral system, philosophy, or, or of any kind. One, his, his claims are absolutely exclusive. He does not say, hey, there's lots of different ways to, to think about things. I'm just one of them. No, he says, build your life on me or it'll all fall apart on you. It's, ex- it's exclusive. It's astonishing. It's arrogant. But secondly, Jesus also had a beautiful, humble life to back it up. Right? He spent his time among the lepers, those who, who, who no one would touch. He spent his life saying, I have good news for the poor. He, he ends his life dying, convinced he's dying for other people. That nowhere in, in, in any other religion, faith, system, will you get anywhere near both the astonishing ex- exclusivity of claims that Jesus makes as well as the incredible humility. You will not get both together. Jesus is in his own category here, which is why when the people f- walk away from his teachings, they're blown away. This is, they, they know Jesus is in a different category. He may be wrong. Maybe he's not what you think he is. But he's in a category all by himself. And when you combine those two things, the astonishing nature of his life, the beautiful humility with which he lived, and the exclusivity of the claims he made, you have to inspect him. You cannot just walk over him. This is, there is no human being who has lived like Jesus lived. And so have you inspected Jesus, his claims? Maybe you've been going to church your whole life. You're not really sure that your life is, is built on Jesus. Or maybe you've never believed. Every one of us in this room, we, Jesus lived this sort of life. You can't just walk away from him. So what are you building your life on? Jesus gives you two options. Either his teachings, his life, or anything else. And so the second question, then Jesus begins to, to push into, okay, well, how, how will the foundation you're living on now, how will it handle real life? That, that in, in Palestine, um, the storms would come on you really fast. And because of the nature of the ground, floods could also come up very, very quickly. And so a good storm, a good quick storm would, would immediately destroy a house built on sand, which is, is a good metaphor for how life works, isn't it? I mean, if something really tragic happens to you, you don't get a note in the mail like two weeks ahead of time, hey, like your life's about to fall apart, get ready, right? It just happens. The storm just comes, it pounds away, and either your foundation holds it or it doesn't. And that's the metaphor Jesus is pushing in here. Listen, you're going to get stormed on so hard, you're not going to be able to prepare for it, you're not going to be able to prevent it. It's just going to come, and when it comes, it's either going to wash away your whole life or you're going to stand through it. So how will your foundation handle real life? 
If you're building your life on happiness, listen, that's sand. Because at some point, you're not going to be able to pursue whatever it is that makes you happy. Either you're not going to have enough money, you're going to be too sick, or the thing that made you happy, it's going to walk away from you. You build your life on that foundation, it is going to go away at some point. Or if you build your life on, on safety and security, listen, you cannot save enough money to protect yourself from all of the disasters that might happen to you. You cannot build a wall tall enough to protect you from all that might get in to destroy it. If, if, you're a good, if, you're, if you're a parent, you cannot be a good enough parent to ensure that your kids will love you or won't, and won't abandon you. You cannot be a good enough employee to ensure that you'll get the raise that you think you're owed or the promotion that you think you're owed. You cannot save enough money to insulate you from all that will happen to you. If you live for safety, security, if that's the foundation on which you build, listen, it's, it's sand. It's going to go away. Or if you build your life trying to be true to, true to yourself, trying to, to live into your desires, whatever your heart longs for. Listen, the storms of life are going to take that away. Because either, right, the things you love, that your desires, maybe in the end they actually were really bad for you. and They destroyed you. Right, what if you turn out to love and give your life to something that in the end gives nothing back to you? Whether it's a person, a job, a career, a dream. It's all sinned except for Jesus. But Jesus, he doesn't just want you to say, build your life here. He wants you to admit where you've been building. What you've been building on. To admit the implications of those and to acknowledge where you're building now is going to get swept away. And this week I was listening to a podcast, um, and there's a woman who was being interviewed. Her name's Nancy Joe Sales, and she wrote a book on, um, on social media, and in particular, it's, it's a effects on um, teenage girls. And one of the, the big points is basically that social media is having a very bad effect for, for teenage girls. And there's one interview in the, 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 pod, in the book that's, that's fascinating more than any others. There was a girl who basically acknowledged, this is ruining my life. Like, social media is ruining my life. The pressure it's putting me under... Um, this, whether it's cyberbullying or the hypersexualization of teenage girls through social media, it's, it's really bad. This is destroying my life. And so Nancy asked her, well, why don't you stop? She said, well, if, if I stopped, then I wouldn't have a life. And I don't say that to pile on our teenagers because I think our teenagers are actually far more honest than we adults are. Right? We know the foundation that we're building on is going gonna, is gonna to go away, but then we wouldn't have a life, Right? So we keep building on the sand, hoping it will stand the test of time, and it won't. To build your life on something other than Jesus, and anything could destroy you. To build your life on Jesus and his teachings, and nothing can destroy you. Nothing can get to you. Nothing can take your life from you. That's what Jesus is saying. And I've seen the, the truth of this statement borne out in my life as a Christian going through the church. I think of my friend Betsy, who I mentioned a few weeks back, who lost her first child within a couple of days of childbirth, Lydia. And in my first conversation with Betsy, seeing both her tears and her fierce faith was a reminder that her house had had a vicious storm pound against it. But her life stayed. Her house is full of tears and anger and frustration, but it is full of joy as well. I think the pastors I met a couple of months ago, they're from China, and one of the questions that, that I asked them was, what about persecution? What about um, threat of prison and all, all of that? And, and just this past week, the New York Times released an article where a Chinese pastor has been sentenced to, to 14 years in prison, his wife to 12 years in prison, and 10 people in his church um, were sentenced as well, although we don't know how long their sentences were. And so when I asked those Chinese pastors, what, what about prison? What about persecution? 
Some of them had already been there, and some of them, or all of them, had this, this look of faith and strength. They've been through that storm. They've come out the other side. Their foundation is on rock. I think of, of Sam, who's in my, my church in Indiana, and his, his storm came when he was in elementary school. His parents divorced. His dad, addicted to drugs, basically abandoned him. His mom then invited a guy to live into to their house that just completely made life more difficult on Sam. Imagine, as an elementary kid, having that sort of storm enter into your life. But I saw his faith grow through junior high and high school. His faith is stronger today than it's ever been before. He's known a storm I've never known, even though I've lived twice as long as him. And yet he, he, he stood the test. His foundation was on rock, and the worst of life hit him, and it didn't move him. He stood. See, storms will come. That's the, that's the only thing that is, is the same between the two foundations, right? Jesus didn't say, if you follow me, no storms. It'll be great. You'll have a, a nice little cottage on an island somewhere. It'll be great. No, he says, you're gonna, you have to build on the rock because storms are going to come, right? You live life long enough, and a really terrible thing is going to happen to you. And so trusting Jesus, it doesn't remove the storms of life. It just removes their threat. They can't take your foundation away from you. Well, maybe you hear all that and say, but, but, but Tim, I know a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus, they cope well with life and tragedy, and that's true, right? There's no doubt you don't have to, to follow Jesus to cope well with life, but there is one storm that gets all of us, that gets all of our foundations. One storm that, that I, it doesn't matter how well adjusted you are, it doesn't matter how strong you are, it doesn't matter um, how wise you are, this storm will wipe out your foundation. You will not survive this storm, and that's death. Right, so Jesus, he's saying, listen, what are you building on? Can it handle real life? Right? If, if, if divorce, if, if, if war, if death entered into your life, could you get through it? But even if you can get through all of that, can you get through death? Will your foundation last? When I was in college, I was talking to a friend of mine at a New Year's Eve party, and it got late, so it was after midnight, and we, we started talking. He was an atheist. I was, I was studying to be a pastor, so we started talking about religion. And, and to me, always the most compelling argument to be a Christian is, is the afterlife, right? It's heaven. It's how could you want to die and that be, that be it? And so I was making that, trying to make that case to him, and, and he's just like, listen, the idea of floating on a cloud, playing a harp, wearing white for eternity just sounds terrible to me. I have no interest in heaven whatsoever. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know that the Simpsons is quite what heaven's going to be like, but, I mean, point well taken, right? And so... So we're talking, and then I ask him, okay, so what, you die, you're, that's it? What, what, what's your thought? And he's like, no, no, here's, here's what I'm living my life for. And, and so he was getting his PhD in medieval history at, at that point, and, and he told me, he said, what my goal in life is to publish, to publish a, a history on medieval history that then goes into a library and people study it for, for centuries to come. That's my, that's my goal in life. And I have to be honest, I kind, of, I kind of laughed at that at the time because medieval history, just like giving your life to that just feels like a huge mistake to me because medieval history never interested me. And yet, and yet what he was doing was the same thing I was doing. He just had a far less, far less grand vision for his future than, than, than I think the Christian faith gives, which is he wanted a foundation that last, that would last, that would, get, that would push beyond his death, that would go beyond the grave. And so do I. And I, I, listen, I think every human being wants that. Whether you believe in God or not, you don't want to just die and have your kids forget you. You don't want to just die and have all of your work go to waste. You want your, your work, your life to last beyond yourself. That we creatures, we human creatures, were built with eternity 
in us. We're meant to live forever. And that's our problem, right? If the Bible is right that, that we're going to live for imagine, forever, could you imagine yourself as you are right now living forever? Right? I mean, think back. We're at the end of the Sermon on the Mount now. And Jesus has, has basically said, listen, I'm bringing in the kingdom of God. And, and the kingdom of God, it looks like this. You, you, you cannot be angry. You cannot lust. You cannot obscure the truth in any way whatsoever. You cannot be greedy. You cannot worry or have any anxiety. Right? I mean, how many of us are like, oh yeah, I'm doing that right now? No, we, we aren't doing that. We are so far. Right? And then he moves on and he's like, well, and guess what? You can't have a, any bit of a judgmental spirit in your life. You cannot look down on anyone else. Right? The problem is Jesus gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and what he says is the foundation on which you're to build your life is not to have warm, fuzzy feelings about Jesus, not put pictures up of him around your house and think really good thoughts about him. No, you're to actually do everything he told you to do. You're supposed to do everything the Sermon on the Mount says you're supposed to do, and that, that is our problem, that we can't do that. We can't do the Sermon on the mount, but we're supposed to, right? I mean, this, and I want to be very clear. Jesus is saying you are supposed to build your life here on these teachings, not just on, on me and good feelings about me. You're supposed to do the things that I've said for you to do. And to build your life on Jesus is not just to, to, have, to believe certain things to be true about him, but actually to practice a life where you do the very things he says you're to do. I love the way Francis Chan unpacks this um, as an illustration, how we're to obey the commands of, of Jesus. Right? We probably all play the, the game, um, Simon says, right? Simon says, clap your hands, you clap your hands, right? If Simon says it, you do it, right? But that's not the way we think of obedience to, to Jesus often. Right? Or I think of, of just being married, right? In, in, in marriage, you're in a covenant, so there's this, there's this give and take. And so, so when my wife asked me to do something, I, sh I should do it. And so imagine Misty comes to me and she says, Tim, I want you, you know, community group's coming over later today, I want you to pick your clothes up off the floor. Right, and a couple hours later, I see her and I say, Misty, I, I memorized what you said to me earlier. Tim, could you pick your clothes up off the floor? I haven't, I haven't studied it in Greek. It's a good command. In fact, there's going to be four or five guys. They're going to come over later today. We're going to talk about what it would mean if I was to pick my clothes up off the floor. Right? That's how we treat Jesus' commands. Off. Like, what would it look like if I did? Like he, I know he said that, but let's be real. No, and Jesus says, listen, if you don't do what I say, your whole life is going to crash. You have to obey my teachings. Is that the foundation of your life? Jesus says it, I do it. Because Jesus says if that's not the foundation of your life, everything, everything crashes on you. Everything will fall apart. Your house is built on sand. Right, do, you feel the, do you feel our problem here? We, we can't do the very thing he's telling us to do. He expects us to do everything he commanded us, and yet we can't. But it's even worse than that. I used to think Matthew 7, it's talking about the storms of life, like right, cancer or death, or when those things come on you. But the reality is Jesus is speaking to Jewish people. And in the Old Testament, whenever a storm was referenced, it was almost always referring to the presence of God. God is a storm, right? And so, so Moses, when, when God gives the Ten Commandments, it's a storm. At the end of the book of Job, when God shows up to Job, it's a storm. 
So when Jesus talks about a storm coming, what he's saying is, is, is not just, I think, that, that, hey, life is going to really hit you, but he's saying God is coming to inspect your life, to inspect your foundation, to meet you. Right? He did not make you and I just to be creatures who live 70 years and that's it. He made you and I as eternal beings. It's why I want to live forever and it's why atheist wants to write a medieval history book that lives on forever. We have that hard wired into us. And Jesus says God is coming to meet you and he's coming as a storm. And that is an encounter you and I cannot survive. Not how we are right now. Jesus has exposed that in the Sermon on the Mount. We're far too petty. We're lightweights. If God was to come and meet us, we would be like a lawn chair in front of a hurricane. We're not ready to meet with him. But I don't mean that in a sense of like God's so angry with you, he's going to come and he's just going to brain and pound on you. And th- That's not primarily what the storm imagery of God is used of in the Old Testament. I love the way C.S. Lewis unpacks this idea in the, the, his fictional novel, The Great Divorce. In the novel, it's about people who live in hell and are given the opportunity to visit heaven. So they live in hell, they can visit heaven, and if they want to stay, they can. It's, it's, it's a short, great read. I highly recommend it to you. But, but almost everyone goes back to hell. And the, one of the main reasons why is that heaven is it, it's too, they can't survive there. They're not built for it. And so when, they, when the people from hell try to rock on the grass of heaven, it hurts. It's like, it's like when we walk barefoot on gravel. The, the grass is too real and too strong for them. They can barely, barely see because the sun is so bright. When they talk to someone who is from heaven, they can barely look at them because the, the radiance and the glory of that person, it's too great. Their eyes aren't trained to see people like that. The reality is that the people in hell, they're not solid. They're not real. They're lightweights. I think Jesus is saying something very similar, that if, if you were to just meet God as you are, you would, you'd, you'd crumble at the weight of the storm. You'd be swept away. You, you, you are not solid enough to meet with God. Right? The fact that we struggle to obey Jesus' commands, to do what he says, is a warning that we've built on the wrong foundations. A warning that, that we're building ourselves in such a way where we couldn't stand heaven. A warning that if God were to show up, we, we'd just be blown away. We'd be swept away because he's too real and we are too fake. It's why Jesus ends his sermon on the Mount with a simple command. Do everything I've told you to do because you are not meant to live like this. It's a command, a command we must keep and it's a command we cannot keep. And I think this tension is why Jesus' life ends the way that it does. When Jesus goes on the cross, Matthew tells us that the sky grew dark. The clouds gathered. A storm was brewing. God was coming. And Jesus died. And it appears the storm broke his foundation, but the death of Jesus was not the breaking of his foundation. It was the cornerstone of it. The center of Christianity, of our faith, is a death and a resurrection. And Jesus went first for us so that you and I, we could die as we are, the people who cannot live the Sermon on the Mount, and be raised to become people who actually do what the Sermon on the Mount commands us to do. People who actually are generous. People who actually stop being judgmental towards others. People who actually stop obscuring the truth. Stop 
lusting. Stop judging others. We actually become people like that. We actually become people who could enter into heaven and live there and enjoy it. That's why Jesus, his life ends being broken by a storm, because that's what would have happened to us. And yet he's raised to new life to show us you don't have to end with your house on the sand being swept away. It's also why I think Jesus gives us the image of baptism for our salvation. I mean, think about baptism. You, you drown. You die. You're under the water. You didn't survive. You didn't make it. But if you're buried with Christ, right, the, the flood water that drowns you, God raises you to new life to a new foundation that will last. Through any storm that could, that could come on you, through anything that could happen to you, even through death itself.